I am someone who loves double and triple negatives, so I always say things in complicated ways. Oh and Borowski as well. But I feel there's something beautiful about it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> to do a proper introduction All right. of our awesome person. Okay. What do you think of this Where? title? <laughs> uh, so, today's awesome person is... I can't do that. You can't do it. <laughs> can't do it. This, today's consistently lucky guy. <laughs> Yay to low self-esteem. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyways, this awesome person is... Don't laugh. I know it's cheesy, but I couldn't think of another thing is Joseph Gasho, officially titled the Professor of Music at University of Michigan right. Department of Organ. I'm in the Department of Organ. But, I don't understand but that. But, you know, we get to kind of have our own things. I think I call myself the professor of, I'm assistant professor of harpsichord and, and historical performance. And historical, that makes more right. sense to me. Yeah. Right. So I'm in the organ department. Why is uh, that part of the organ department? Uh, it probably makes as much sense as any. I mean, okay. organ department or organ rep, a lot of it, is the same as harpsichord rep. Yeah. You know, more than piano, right? Right. I mean, piano and harpsichord rep, I mean, do overlap to some degree around Bach and right. Scarlatti, but not much else. Right. Whereas, you know, organ, we overlap from, you know, 1500 to 1750. So. Right. And, but you know, it, no, no, no. The reason it doesn't make sense to me is that it's calling one specialized field, one <clears throat> instrument right. group, within catch-all. Right. No, you're right. So. I think it's just the way it is. <laughs> Joe is here as a faculty, a guest right. faculty for right. our Emerging Artist Fellows program. Right. And he is a special guest faculty because he was an alumni. Right. And um, he has gone on to have a very successful career. Extremely successful. And <laughs> therefore, we asked him to be our guest faculty Yes. Also, because I cannot teach the harpsichord. That is not my forte. And I can't even <laughs> Nor play your it. piano. Oh, my God. So, and he just played awesomely for our concert, our last concert yeah. today. It's a suite by Buxby, you know? Yeah. And it, it was beautiful. Maybe one of my favorite composers. Why yeah. is that? I don't know. It's like, it's simple, but so sweet and profound. Like, I have never found, maybe like in Stravinsky. Like yeah. a composer with as much like exuberance. Oh, really? There's just these spots of like, there's these bars that are just like too exuberant. I'll begin with Dietrich Buxtehude. He was a North German organist and composer, and he was renowned as a teacher as well. And when Bach was the age of our young artists, instead of getting on the plane or taking the train to Garth Newell to study, Bach walked 200 miles to study with Dietrich Buxtehude. So for most of us, that's good enough. <laughs> but his music also is amazing. He composed about 16 suites. Suites are little collections of dances. And the four that we have today, the Aleman, Koran, Serban, and Zig, they're the four kind of standard dances of the Baroque, and they kind of give a nice perspective. The Alamans, stately, kind of, it's all good. It's a nice way to begin. The Karant's a little more exuberant, more dancey. The Saraban, slow and more contemplative, perhaps. And then the jig is usually a, a good way to end. So. <laughs> it's funny, because I, I honestly, a lot of times I play them like 
twice, like even in recital. Oh, really? Like, I'll just, like, repeat bars yeah. a couple times. I was thinking it was too short. I right. was like, wait, there's more, right? Well, and, and we were talking about, during some of the coachings with Aislinn, we were talking about, like, when are you supposed to make repeats and things like that. Yeah. And so, right, like, in the jig, I played the first section twice. I played the second section three times, plus a petite reprise. See, I didn't... I didn't really see all that because right. you did it so differently. Right. It was kind of, I was, it was fun. It was kind of seamless, but yeah. I tried to like incorporate a couple things from the week that we had talked about uh-huh. into the performance. Like I did a little prelude that I worked in the Fisher's Hornpipe that I played yeah. with Kayla yesterday. So I don't know. I tend to play for the musicians. Right. Um, you like the inner jokes. Yeah. Inside jokes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what was great about, um, so Joe did this musical moment, we call it, between right. dinner and dessert last night. Right. And um, it was a set of fiddling tunes that yeah. you totally shredded. Like, you just improvised off of them. Yeah. And, I mean, it's stuff I've known for a while. And it's been a hobby for a long time. Oh, really? I don't know why exactly. No, I do know why. So college, mm-hmm. maybe the year before I came to Garth Newell, there was this concert series. And they had this, like, banjo celebration. So they had like Ralph Stanley, an American banjo player, was there, and Seamus Egan, an Irish guy, and there was an African banjo player because I guess the banjo is originally from Africa. And so I just loved it. And I bought like every CD at the counter. What was it that appealed to you about it? I don't know. Just something very cool. And so I went to school not far away from here at Eastern Mennonite, about an hour and a half up the road. And the other EMU. The other EM, that's right, yeah. And, you know, part of that, I think it's also just how I grew up, Charlottesville, Harrisonburg area. Wait, you're from here? I grew up in Charlottesville. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so, you know, the old time stuff is not so far away. No, they love it here. And, like, I love yeah. the old acapella, Harmonia Sacra and Sacred Harp singing. Oh, okay. And my sister's a fiddler. Oh, and she? so, you know, we played sometimes and, you know, I don't, it's just how it is. Like even at a church job I used to have, we had a bunch of great musicians to play a bluegrass band, but we didn't have a bass. Aww. So I bought a bass and learned how to play so I could be the bass player in the band. You this know, seems to be a, a trend with you is that you see something. If there's a need, yeah, yeah learn I'll learn how to do it and, in like a second. and start to do it. Exactly. <laughs> the funniest, uh, one of my proudest moments with that. So I teach at Overland in the summer too. The Baroque Ensemble. Yeah, exactly. Baroque Performance Institute. Ah, is that the biggest one of their I don't know. It's probably the biggest by numbers. I, you know, Tafel Music in Toronto is quite big too, but... And like, Iceland is that. Yeah, I think... That, right? I'm not sure, actually. But, like, I conducted a student orchestra of about 60 people two wow. weeks ago, so that's a big... Yeah. Big orchestra, so yeah. it's really fun. But one year, there was no violone player, and the violone is, like, oh. the six-string bass with frets. Oh, okay. So oh, the, the big awkward thing. Not the octo bass. Okay. It's kind of between a double bass and a viola da gamba. Okay. So this is going to be way too long of a story, but That's the, okay. the conductor comes up to me on like Wednesday. Uh-huh. The concert was going to be like nine days down the road, right? The next weekend. He's like, time. Joe, we don't have anybody to play violone for that concert. Uh-huh. Uh, you think you could learn to play it? Really? So uh, he's like, yeah, I know you're a pretty handy guy. So I'm like, I'll try. So I got the violone, given I had been a cellist when I was young. Oh, okay. So I knew how a bow goes across works. a string. Yeah. But the violone, it's a different tuning. Right. It's six strings. Right. 
It's frets. Yeah. And this violone, I mean, the chords are all, the strings are all gut. Uh-huh. So thick. I could just barely get a sound out of it. Oh, wow. So I could barely play a scale. So I go back to him the next morning and I tell him, Ken, it's just too hard. Yeah. And he, he's there with some other, support. like, senior faculty. Uh-huh. And he just starts ribbing. He's like, Joe. I thought you were a pretty talented guy. I can't oh. believe you can't do that. Oh, he knows how to push and your buttons. And I was like, screw you. <laughs> I'm doing it. So, like, for the next eight days, I practiced that violone like you wouldn't believe. My, oh I didn't my have God. any calluses, right? Yeah. So my fingers just killed. Yeah. And I actually, I, I was not able to learn to read the music that fast. Mm-hmm. So I made a tablature for the whole concert. And every note, I put a fingering over it. Wow. And if I was to play in a half step down position, yeah. I circled those n- numbers. Okay. And if I played in a higher position for sharps, I would put boxes around those notes. Oh. So this whole like hour and a half concert, I played from this crazy score I had made right. with numbers. Awesome. And that's probably the biggest stretch of anything I've ever done, is to learn to play that. And play, like, honestly, you know, one of the pieces that I did was with Kathy Mines, mm-hmm. who's a world-class gamba player. She's the mm-hmm. t- teacher there at Oberlin. Yeah. Max von Egmont, who's, like, a legendary baritone. Oh, my God. Me. <laughs> and I think it was Barry Boggess, who's, like, a super great professional trumpet player. Yeah. And it was just hilarious. One of my friends, actually, who was there, she was like, it's actually better that you were not good. <laughs> Because if you had been good, if you had been good, you would have played too strongly and it wouldn't have added as much. But because you were not good, it was perfect. <laughs> it was a true friend that gives exactly. that sort of opinion. Anyway, you're right. Sorry. I like to do lots of crazy stuff. And we were talking about the musical moment. Yeah, it just and struck that, me. Right. I never thought that fiddling could work on a harpsichord and it totally worked. Totally worked. Because yeah. it is like the banjo. Yeah, okay. I think it has that kind of percussiveness, and uh-huh. it doesn't last long. Okay. Right? Like, with piano, often when you do classical or Baroque stuff, like, the sound just builds up. Yeah. And in harpsichord, it doesn't build up so much. Yeah. So you can play a lot of stuff, but still stay out of the way. Huh. So it's kind of a texture game. I see. I think that's why it also works great for continuo. Yeah. And few counterpoint, like I said the other day, it's like, this has a kind of clarity. Mm-hmm. And you got to embrace that and... That's something I did actually notice because, you know, they forced me to play harpsichord when I got here, and I was not comfortable with this instrument. Right. Because I'm not a harpsichord player, and but I tried. I even did a Skype lesson with Franny. (laughs) Hi, Franny. Um, And (laughs) uh, go, Francis. Yeah, the internet was too poor to have any good. But um, he was like, "Oh, I really like being able to hear myself and having this like texture and everything." He used the word texture. Yeah. It just didn't get in the way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I I, I grew to like it because of the um, the tactile. Way it, yeah, the tactile nature of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's part of why you love it. Right. right? Exactly. And yeah, I was paying attention to your hands today. Yeah. Just to see how long you would release. Right. And and all of right, that. Right. Right. I wish I had a better view. I'm sorry you left handed. Right. I mean, I do always. I feel like I always struggle that I my tendency is to play too short. Oh really. Yeah, I just, it's easy for me to let go of stuff. You know, I was telling the students, like, I feel like, you know, most people when they come to play Baroque music, they either play it 
they play everything con- too consistently. Mm-hmm. Either the, you know, it's like consistently everything's short. Yeah. Or consistently everything's legato. Which is why I used to think it was boring. Right. And the yeah. it has to be this middle ground, like this word that, you know, to me it used to be a nightmare, nightmare word of articulation. Like this kind of like yeah. intellectual thing of like doing it's, the right groups of notes. It's not a nightmare word if you hear a Venezuelan say it though. Articulation. Or... Articulation. <laughs> but, you know, I was listening to Chalabidaki one time. He was one of a conductor I love talking mm-hmm. about this. Really. And I, the way he talked about it, it's just like a way to, to group things logically. Like right. When you speak, you have pauses. You rush uh-huh. through some things, you know. But yeah. somebody's articulate is easy to understand, right? right? They take ideas they have and they make their listeners understand them yeah like that's what we want to do as musicians especially baroque musicians that where they were thinking about text models and that communication was really important so grouping things into coherent units right i mean that's what it's about and it turned into be a really fun game slash you know idea delivery system you mean your your class or just that way of playing right you know That way of playing, of like just trying to, you know, show people how rhetorical it is. Yeah, and how things that make sense. And it's not exactly language, but yeah. It it is. I mean, um, it's not totally different. No, it it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Sort of like I remember a lesson I had with Young Hee Min about a Bach toccata. Okay. And she was just re slurring things for me and regrouping them. Yeah. In sort of the musical logic of the piece. Yeah. And that was the first time anyone had ever done that. And I've played Bach it's a long time. Times, but that seems to be like the basis right. of your musical thought. I think that's a big part of it. And do you think that yeah. is the, that came with your instrument? Or did that just come because you love early music? Right. I think it came you know, a little bit hand in hand, but I discovered it more from the, in, from the instrument, from my teachers. Oh, okay. That's the way my teachers taught. Right. Um. It drove me nuts for a long time when, you know, I was a horrible student. Were you? I mean, it was balanced by I was a great student. Like, I did love my teachers, and yeah. I respected them, and I, and I worked super hard. But right. I also, I think in a polite way, but I, you know, questioned everything. Right. Uh, Webb, if you hear this, Webb, what's up? <laughs> Webb uh, Wiggins. Only he was my teacher at Peabody. Like Webb would hear this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, he, he called me, I think, what did he call me? His doubting Thomas. Because, you know, yeah, I was his disciple, but I doubted everything. That's ideal, though, for a teacher. I think and, if you're You know, it's true. And he did tell me that me being his student helped him, forced him to think, think about things. And, you know, maybe yeah. helped him when he had other doubting Thomases or, I don't know. I mean, yeah. if you're forced to put things into words that just, you will take as... A given somehow you do understand them better oh totally especially so, if you've been teaching a long time right so yeah, yeah i mean i i was a bad student in a certain way i mean i think yeah i've kept up with all my teachers forever so and i love them you know but i definitely i tried to figure stuff out yeah. you know and i would push them sounds like you were advice. a genuinely curious student for sure yeah yeah well yeah. okay so getting to know you what is your story in terms of you transitioned from piano to harpsichord, right? And um, 
you were here at Garfield as right. a pianist. Right, exactly. So tell us a little bit about why you chose the harpsichord right. or what led to it. Yeah, it, you know, it was a very for, fortuitous, lucky thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so I kind of came music. I was never quite sure what I was doing with it. I liked it. I was okay. I uh-huh. practiced hard sometimes, and it was hard to figure out. And During college, I really got into collaborative stuff. That's how I came to Garth Newell. I was uh-huh. with a piano trio, kind of in a preformed trio that came oh, here. Oh, so you were a preformed group. Okay. Yeah, and, and I had some great singers at college that I played with. Um, you know, they really know how to sing. it's true. I yeah, have no idea. Sorry. it is true. But, uh, yeah. So I had some really good, you know, friends to play with in college and I think that got me going and I wanted to do collaborative piano. Mm-hmm. I, I struggled with some tendonitis even in college actually. And oh, really? that's how I got to know Marianne Hahn at Peabody cause she was a teacher who works a lot with people with repetitive motion hand problems. Yeah. So I got to know her my senior year of college when I was still at EMU in Harrisonburg and I would yeah. drive up to see her and then whether you know in retrospect who can say whether I should have gone to Peabody or not it was like I said the other day it was a big it was a huge shock huge, to go yeah. from a place with two music majors to you know a lot yeah and a lot of people who've been preparing their whole lives to do music and right it was tough and the tendonitis didn't go away in that situation and I was kind of lost and Fortunately, I had a I had a really great assistantship with John Spitzer, uh, music history prof, and I you know, I was able to kind of stay in school for free teaching. Oh, nice! So, and I had switched actually while I was battling out the tendonitis, mm-hmm. I was doing a music history degree, oh. and just I you know I figured if I was going to school for free, I'll just stay there and learn as much as I can and see what happens. That's that's a good philosophy. It was all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I needed two. This it, you can't believe it's true, but I needed two credits to finish the history it's true. degree. Yeah, yeah. And the only thing that really fit was this Basso Continuo class. Okay. And I still had the tendonitis, so I went and saw the teacher, who was this crazy, crazy. awesome dude, Webb Wiggins. And and I said, you know, I can't play very much. I have tendonitis. You think I can do your class? And he said, it's more thinking than playing. Uh-huh. You know, it's not a lot of work, so you should try it. Okay. You know, so I tried it, and the first day I went in, and, you know, I was used to not being the strongest keyboard player, and right. all of a sudden, I could do this pretty much better than anybody there, like on huh. day one, and it's just something kind of clicked that I I can figure out these harmonies, and huh. it was just kind of, I don't know, it felt just at home to me, and I think, I, I don't know if I was telling you, but I didn't like the harpsichord initially. You didn't tell me this. Yeah, I forget okay. who I was talking to about that, but it was really a battle for me. I never felt I could make a beautiful sound. Mm-hmm. I love this continual thing, though, like yeah. how to voice chords and, you know, accompany. Again, it was going back to that collaborative thing. It was a collaborative process yeah. and an adaptive thing. I loved it. So, I, you know, I kept pushing, and I'm like, I'm going to figure out a way to, like, make peace with the harpsichord. Right. Um. It took years. Really? And, and I don't really, there was no like magic moment. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I had lessons with some other teachers that kind of diversified my approach. I don't think it was any one thing. Right. But there was some point down the road, a couple of years down the road, mm-hmm. that I felt like really in touch with the sound. Huh. But and I this mean, was like after I'd won a competition. 
Like, I, that, that big like, competition in your bio? Yeah, the, so that was like a, at a year and a half after I'd been playing. And really? I just kind of, you know, lucked into that. Isn't that and the hugest competition for Harpsichord? N- no, I, no, no, no. There, okay, the, I... There's a, it's, I mean, it's the only one really in North America. Right. There's not a lot of competitions. There's others yeah, in Europe that are amazing. Okay. But, you know, so that was some, like, validation that I was doing the right thing. But right. it was still then, I was still really trying to find how to make sound on that instrument. Hmm. And somewhere along the way I did. And now, like I said, I mean, that tactility, that, like, touch of the string, something you don't get on other keyboard instruments, really. Yeah. Right, because the mean, harpsichord's so simple. Yeah, you can actually feel the release. Right. And I don't think you can on the piano. I right. haven't felt it. Right. I can feel sometimes a catch when I play. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, this glorious, like, freedom with the piano. Right. That it just like bubbles up somehow. That's how I feel at least when it's really it working. Up. Yeah. But uh, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody who, um, great guy who's worked with me and maybe coming back to, to study some more and like this like career path thing. It's, I don't know how it was for you, but it was just, it was kind of this faith thing of just like one step at a time. Well, it does sound like you say it clicked for you yeah. and that you were good at it. So, I mean, it took you a while to wrap your head around right. being that. Right, yeah. But it still was, like, you didn't stop playing. And you That's still right. worked really hard at it. So, For sure. And are you motivated by what you think you can be? Are you motivated by, like, an Hugely. obsession? Yeah. I think I'm motivated, like, uh, by a number of things. But, I mean, one of my strengths, also my biggest weakness, is okay. I'm super flexible. Okay. I think that's why I'm a good collaborator. I mean, I can usually find a way to make whatever somebody else's idea is sound good. Right. You know, it might not be my idea, but I feel like I can do what it takes to make that idea work with me and sound good. That's great, yeah. And similarly, you know, like my career, I like to do this producing. I like to conduct. I like... Yeah. Those things are great, and they require some flexibility. And those are the kind of things I like the most, like that spur of the moment. Right. Can you adapt? You know, can you figure it out? That kind of adrenaline rush. Right. But it's a downfall if you don't learn how to, like, plan out big-scale projects. Or if you don't have the skills to carry it out. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, you know, to take on, for example, like the authority of conducting sometimes. Of, like, this needs to happen. And I'm choosing... I'm deciding I want this phrasing or I want this bow shape. And it's not and it's not anything against other people's interpretations. It's just me against myself Yeah. choosing which one of, like, 20 different phrasings I think is the best. So and, you, you know, I can spend, like, two hours right. on two bars. Right. It's kind of hard to get through a piece that way. Yeah, yeah. Indecision. So, exactly. Yeah. I guess on one side, somebody could say that, you don't have a strong enough viewpoint right. to lead. But on the other hand, you're open to so many ideas and you see them all as valid. That's that's an ideal for a leader, too. Hope, yeah, I mean, yeah. you need some of both, right? Yeah. It's funny, I was talking with some friends that I had a conducting project, one of the most enjoyable of my life a couple months ago with don't Apollo's that, yeah. Fire. Okay. Well, so far, doing all an all-Bach program, which mm-hmm. is just stuff I love. And... We were kind of talking about conductors in general and the kind of typical, like, authoritative conductor. Right. And 
I don't know if I said it, but I thought it at least is like that. There's a certain kind of conducting where the performance can kind of only be as good as the conductor's yes. imagination of the piece. Yeah. And I think that's fine. But my desire would be like, hopefully I can create the environment in which, which people with other and great ideas, those ideas get embraced. Yeah. And hopefully like the performance and the rehearsals turn out to be way better than I could have done. I mean, you're totally singing right? my song. Yeah. Like, that's why I do chamber music. Yeah. Because four perspectives combined into a greater perspective than right. one. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you got to be ready to let something go you liked yeah. and somebody has a better idea or... Yeah. You were drawn to collaborating with people, so you didn't have that like sort of diva right. I instinct. never really had that. It Definitely the collaborative thing is the most fun. And it makes sense because you can make somebody sound better. That's sort of what drives you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you learn these skills in order to carry out a vision that you could agree with or not. Right. And maybe sometime down the road you would agree with. Right. I think, yeah. I think the other thing is, I think when I got better and better or more experienced, better as a, an accompanist or a collaborator, I would have to, like two ways of doing things. I'd either like play with people were super hard to play with because I was proud that I could do it. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there's some people that are so hard to play with uh -huh. either their personalities or whatever. And yeah. I would be like, I'm the guy that can do it. Huh. You so know, you're like training yourself to be. Yeah. Okay. You know, and there, there was, you know, people that would be like 10 minutes before the concert. They're like, John, let's do a different piece. Yeah. And I'd be like, okay. And I remember <laughs> like, God bless him. Riley Lewis, who's the conductor of the Washington Bach concert. He passed uh -huh. away about a year ago. I'd never forget, and this is a story I tell all my students now. We were playing a, a bunch of cantatas together one time. Uh -huh. He was, I think, playing, he was conducting and playing organ, and I was playing harpsichord. Uh -huh. And we had divvied up the whole thing, that he would play with certain arias, I would play with certain arias. Yeah. And fine, you know, it was great. And at one point, there was a tenor aria. It was quite exposed, just cello, organ, and the tenor. And it started with a continual chord, just Paul. And then the tenor sang a bar, and then the continuum came back in, and they did the aria together, right? Yeah. So um, this chord happens. Yeah. I'm not supposed to play this piece. Never okay. looked at it. Okay. Nothing. Riley's playing it with yeah. the cellist. So the first chord happens, and it's only the cellist. Oh. And like an idiot, I look up at Riley. I'm like, what's going on? And he looks at me, and he very quietly mouths, what? Yeah. After the first chord? In, yeah, in the middle of the concert. Wow. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff, like, I love. Right. You know? Yeah. And so, like, you know, flexibility, like, mm -hmm. just go for it. Well, it's a huge risk and maybe only pays off, like, a percentage of the time. Right. But somehow that is enough to keep you doing that. Right. But also, is there some sort of pride you feel from having that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, it's, it goes both ways, I think. Like, yeah. part of it is, like, you don't usually get good at that unless you're willing to try that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think it's true. You're right. I feel good that I can do it. Yeah. Or you're known but, as the guy who can do right, anything. Right, But I also know, like, as, like, a continual player, you get, you just end up in those roles. Like, right. as kind of like a session musician, like, something is given to you, and you better be able to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know who said it, but it's like that if whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Huh. Right? Yeah. 
right? No, that's a good bumper sticker. So I feel like you got to at least think you can because then you got a shot. That's true. And mo- I feel like a lot of people only will like attempt things when they're very comfortable. And then like the amount of the number and variety of artistic experiences they have is so low because yes. they're w- not willing to take a chance to look stupid. Oh, definitely. And the more you look bad, the more you learn. It's true. You know? I mean, yes, I agree with that totally. Yeah. But I do think there is an enormous amount of anxiety and pressure placed on a lot of people to make them not want to take chances. Right. And I think that judgment, the quick judgment that comes from failing one time right. is enough because it's so bad now. Like yeah. People don't give somebody a second chance because there's so yeah. many good musicians out there. Yeah, that might be true. But you're not an overconfident person, it seems like. I am definitely not an overconfident person. I'm definitely not. But, and this is, you know, I think what I try to do as a teacher is try to have a place where there's an atmosphere like failing's okay and we're going to learn through it. I mean, there's times it's not okay, right? Right. Like a job audition. Yeah. But you, hopefully along the way, like at Michigan, we, we do this. I started doing this improv chamber music class. Yeah. It's just a group that all we do the whole semester is improv. Right. And that has to be a no fear spot and like no judgment, right? Right. Like somebody messes up, fine. You know, you mess up, fine. Yeah. By the end, we've learned kind of what our limits are and we're going to do things that we have 80 or 90% chance of success. Right. You know, 100% chance is not improv probably is kind of boring. Right. You know, 50% is a little too risky. Right. That tends to be where I live, unfortunately. (laughs) Because you get the most adrenaline, right? Yeah, I guess so. This beer bottle's getting kind of empty here. Okay, we can take a break. Right. And I mean, I do way less now that I'm in Michigan because it was like in D.C., you know, a few engineers got to know me and that was like the best way, just word of mouth of like somebody says, hey, we need somebody for this record and they would be like, we know this guy. Yeah. And yeah, with strangers. Yeah, you're right. You just got to figure out kind of the chemistry of the room. And I mean, it's it's one of those things like it's tremendously scary. Is it? Well, in the end, like, you know you have, like, these three or four hours. Yeah. And if you don't have everything, even if you don't have, like, one bar, the record's off. Yeah. You know? And, like, especially high-pressure stuff. Like, I did this one record, National Cathedral, uh-huh. paying 10000 bucks an hour. Whoa. You know, if I miss something, this, like, $250,000 project with choir and NSO players yeah. is off. Because I missed one bar, you so know? So it all goes on your shoulders? Yeah. As a, okay. I mean, maybe not totally. Maybe it's a little bit the conductor's fault. But in the end, I'm the final guy. Right. Huh. So that was a real situation. Yeah. And it's a situation like the composer's in the room with me. He wants one thing. Yeah. Something goes wrong with, this was a gig with 30 mics. Whoa. Something goes wrong with the main mic. The engineer's freaking out. 
the composer's talking to me. I'm talking on the mic to the conductor in the group, and yeah. I'm trying like I don't let them know anything's wrong. I'm yeah. like, hey guys, you know, sounding great. I think we, just, you know, I'm just bullshitting them. It's 12:30 a.m. Oh you know, God. we know like lights are gonna go out. All the, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's terrifying, but I guess I've just gotten consistently lucky. It's always worked out. Are you good? Maybe. I, right, I mean, who knows? <laughs> I, I would always say I'm like consistently lucky. Yeah. Which actually, did I ever tell you I I play a lot of Go? Do you know Go? Is that the, the like Badook? Japanese game? Yeah, in okay. Korean it's Badook, I think. Okay. You know it? We have a Korean student here who is getting music out. That's the noise yeah. that you hear. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, and so I I used to be serious about it, but I had to stop because I just had too much anxiety and. Over go? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, like, checkers is to chess as chess is to go. I see. That's kind of an exaggeration, but it's sublime. Right. And, <laughs> and I was in this tournament one time, and I beat this guy, and he was so pissed. And he said, he's like, you're just consistently lucky. It's not fair. Wow. <laughs> Wait, so you tournamented with this? You were I mean, like, No, like, amateur stuff. Okay. I was never a killer good player. Okay. I mean, I worked on it and I loved it, but I was never super good. So. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, how do we talk? Get to talk about that? Oh, well, consistently lucky. Yeah. So, um, this is the part in the podcast where I read your bio and ask dumb questions. Okay. That's okay, right? Great. Okay. So I noticed that you have different consistently dumb questions. Consistently dumb. I mean, that's <laughs> you're consistently lucky, and I'm consistently <laughs> dumb. So yeah, I noticed you have many hats. You're a conductor. Yeah. Producer, an editor, an editor of music. Or... No, like, uh, no, I'd like to do that, but, and I do less and less. But I'd like to actually do the editing of stuff I produce if possible, mm-hmm. like the actual cutting and pasting. Okay, so then... of the recording. But honestly, the reason I I just got into it kind of, I forget why. I was I was doing I was picking takes for somebody's recording that I had produced. Yeah, and I thought. This is so annoying. And I'm a very indecisive person. But it's annoying to trust somebody else to understand what you mean? No. It's like I wanted to be able to hear if A transitioned oh. into B better than... It wasn't just clearly that like B is better than C. Yeah. It was a question of like what's the flow from A to B or yeah. A to C. Because I kind of maybe, for example, I might like C better, but A to B somehow is really beautiful. Right. And it's I'd rather have that than have two really clean things that don't quite musically make sense. Yeah. So I just started, I just downloaded a free trial of Logic, and I just edited a piece. I didn't even tell the the people I was doing it for, and I just said, I tried this, what do you think? And they were like, well, we can kind of hear one edit, can you fix that? And I was like, okay. Yeah. And after that, I got the job. Really? Because it's not really hard. Right. You know, you just push things around. You try and you try. And it's about having a good ear. I think so. I think, yeah, yeah mostly. Mm-hmm. Good ear, persistence, and a little, like, kind of computer savvy. Mm-hmm. It just seems so much more efficient. I mean, I think also the thing, like, with producing or conducting, it's not so much about, to me at least, like, what's right, but, like, do we collectively have some vision of what's happening in this project or this yeah. recording? And I think it can work great if you have a perfect team, but just... If you were like if you were the producer and you were there with them 
working with them, hearing the conversations in the rehearsal. Yeah. Like, we want this. We value this part of the music. You're going to be there in the editing booth, and you're going to hear these things that, like, objectively, something might be cleaner. Yeah. But if you know everybody in the room was going for something else, yeah. that's what they cared about, and you got it on this take that was just a, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say. You don't yeah. want sloppiness, but... Or, you know, was a little bit, like, muffled. There's all different priorities, right? But if you know everybody wanted something, you're going to choose that. Right. And as you talk to them as the producer and you, and you kind of get in their vibe, I just heard people talk about these situations where they record stuff and these are, like, freelance giggers in D.C. And then, they like, a year later, they get the recording and be like, it doesn't sound like us at all. This wasn't, like, what we were going for. Oh. This wasn't what we wanted. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, that happens a lot. Do you know Antonino? Of course. Well, he yeah. was our engineer for uh-huh. um, the Moravec Piano Quartet. Yeah. And the thing about him is that he's a fine musician himself. Right. And so he, he kind of is a producer already. Exactly. I mean, we had a producer, but it was really nice to have him being like a co-producer in a way. No, he's great. And he was very meticulous, actually. Yeah. I think that is almost a job that can't be two separate people. I don't know if that's true or not. There are some engineers that are only engineers, but there are also definitely engineers that are producers or, you know, they're giving yeah. you like musical feedback too. How can you not, if you're in a situation like that, how can you not give musical feedback if you are Again, like some people come, but some people come at the engineering thing from the technology point of view. Right. And they want to, you know, it's hard to say what's better. I mean, my feeling is always like the musical stuff should be in there. Yeah, it's but, reassuring. Yeah, as a performer. Right. Yeah, but you also know, like some people are just geeked out by the right mics and all the, you know these kind of things. Yeah, there's something cool about that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's okay, Teresa. Just We're walking chill. around. Okay. Yeah. Did you know yeah. he was a producer? An excellent one. Oh my god! I really? love. Yeah. And he knows Antonino. Yeah. How do you know him? Living, I lived in D.C. for like 20 years, so we did some records together. I and, did not yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking about like how great it is to have Antonio because he also is a producer. Yeah, in a way. and a musician. He has yeah. great ears. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. was apparently quite a good pianist. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but was such a perfectionist <laughs> that, that he couldn't yeah, take it. Yeah, he couldn't take the fistfuls of wrong notes. <laughs> oh, my God. Nice to you work that one in. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's my life. <laughs> you want to join the conversation, Teresa? Oh, I should let you guys get to your podcast. <laughs> How was your goats? Oh, it was fun. It was uh, great. It was... And she even made this strawberry goat yogurt Aww. for everybody. Oh, man. They're so sweet. Yeah. My grandfather raised goats. What? And so yeah. I have so many good memories of goat milk, ice cream, and goat milk. That's why I know how to like squirt the milk in. Yeah, he wanted to go underneath the goat and or beside. It. I know you she just let have, everybody you just try. Have to, you just have to I aim could it. not do it. Yeah, it's I, not I easy. Didn't, I didn't have the right. I don't know. Really, Some of the students were able to do it. The yeah. fine-tuned I... mechanics of a violinist. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. You, you might try what, to be too gentle. What I didn't gentle. realize is that you're supposed to do this finger and then this finger oh. i was doing them both at the same time and yeah. i think it was just stopping it up so <laughs> but yeah it was fun they had cool, cool. good hey take care great having you yeah, my pleasure okay well that ends part one stay tuned next week for part two and uh check us out on itunes so many wrong notes and also visit us on facebook and twitter and instagram all at so many wrong notes Except for Twitter, that has no S at the end.